Podo. You're listening to Movers and Shakers, a podcast about living with Parkinson's. The show is generously sponsored by Boardwave, an exclusive European networking community for software CEOs. Boardwave is a passionate supporter of Cure Parkinson's. For more details on the charity's progress around research and its fundraising, please visit cureparkinsons.org.uk. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Movers and Shakers, a podcast about Parkinson's. I'm Rory Catlin-Jones and we're back in the Notting Hill pub where we meet regularly for a drink and a moan and where we hatched the plan for this ridiculous enterprise. Before we get started, let's have a roll call. Who have we got? I'm Paul Mayhew Archer. I'm Mark Mardell. I'm Jeremy Paxman. I'm Nicholas Mostyn. I'm Gillian Lacey-Solomar. Golly, that went well. You, you've been practising, it sounds like. <laughs> right? uh, now, this week, we're mainly going to focus on young-onset Parkinson's, the 10% of people who are diagnosed with the condition before the age of 50. And this week, we've got a couple of guests. We've got the fabulous Gaynor Edwards, a friend I made through Parkinson's. Gaynor has young-onset and was so hacked off the lack of provision for people like her that she set up a charity called Spotlight YOPD. Welcome, Gaynor. The first time we met, you said red wine was essential, but you're on the tea at the moment. Is it, why is that? I am at the moment. It's a bit early even for me, Rory. Okay. Well, uh, we'll see if we can come to that later. Before we dig in further to this subject, let's go around the table and see what we know about it. Jeremy, what do you know about young onset Parkinson's? Sweet Fanny Adams, nothing at all. You've not done your research. <laughs> was I supposed to have done? There was homework set for everybody, but was that's there? fine. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid I've forgotten it. Yeah. Mark Mardell, you're a bit more of a SWAT, aren't you? So, uh, Well, I am generally, but I am I wanted it to be a surprise and an <laughs> in, intriguing education, so very little, really. Paul? Well, I've got a friend with Parkinson's called Matt Eagles, and he is an extraordinary chap, and he was diagnosed when he was eight years old. Oh, wow. Oh, my so goodness. that is Whoa, stunning, God. and he's still going strong and amazing there. How old is he now? God knows. I, he's, he seems to be as young as ever. Yeah. But he's, he's phenomenal. And he's done a little film, a little video of him trying to eat spaghetti, which is hilarious <laughs> and touching and revealing at the same time. You can see it on the Parkinson's UK website. Right. We'll look out for that. His name is Matt Eagles. Matt Eagles. He soars above us all. <laughs> <laughs> and let's see what the judge who knows everything about everything. <laughs> I know no, nothing. I know. There's a common misconception about judges. Yeah. They know fuck all about anything. <laughs> 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 well, thank you. Thank you for that vote of confidence, Jeremy. Um, Jeremy's on very true. good form. It is true. It is true that about young onset Parkinson's, I know fuck all. But I have brought a proxy with me. My friend sitting next to me, Deborah Carmuth, whose husband lived with it for 30 years. He was diagnosed at 38. He lived with it 30 years until his death a couple of years ago. Yes, my husband was diagnosed a year after we got married, which was not quite according to plan. So we lived with it for 30 years and he was pretty exceptional in defiance the whole time. We'll hear more about that later on in the in this episode. And finally, Gillian Lacey-Solomon, what do you know about it, Gillian? Too much, unfortunately, because I got it at 48, and so I did have young onset. 
Parkinson's. And the only word I liked in the whole thing when I was diagnosed, was, which I clung on to, was this word young. And I still cling on to it. And I'm sure I don't have it anymore. Well, I'm 59 and I think I'm on the cusp. I don't know. Again, I'll ask her in a moment about definitions, but of it not being young anymore. But it's odd to have this old person's illness where you slow down so much when you're 48. And it must be even worse when your husband got it when he was 38, Deborah. And Gaynor, let's come to you straight away, actually. How old were you when you got it? I was 42 when I was diagnosed, which is 10 years ago. My God. And what effect did that have on you immediately? I think it's probably the diagnosis day is the worst day. Mm. You know, it's a degenerative disease, but the shock of that day and having the rug pulled away, that takes some adjustment. A large part of the problem is people are just left to get on with it, really. Well, that's how they feel. There's few lonelier places than being someone in your 30s or early 40s and being in a geriatrician's waiting room. But is it actually the same illness? It is the same illness, isn't it? There's nothing actually fundamentally different about young persons and older no, persons. No, it is it's different. Just issue. Is that? It is, is it? different. So you'll like this bit. Okay. You are, in fact, forever young. Oh, hooray. Once you are diagnosed young onset, it's forever young onset. <laughs> young onset is a syndrome. And within that, there are many various versions, many Parkinson's disorders. We don't like the word disease, and strictly speaking, it's a disorder rather than a disease. Is you a see disorder a better than a disease? Well, I don't know. It depends whether you're playing top trumps or, or what, it, <laughs> what it comes into, really. But technically, you know, we see movement disorder specialists if we're lucky. They are the experts within the whole Parkinson's field. I mean, we all had, we talked about this last time, miserable, miserable diagnoses. Was yours any better? The conversation went, hello, how are you? I'm fine. Yeah. How, how do you think I am? How am I? No, I asked her, you tell me how I am. Mm. And she said, I think you have Parkinson's. You think you have Parkinson's and we're here for you. Tilted the head and that was it. We're here for you then. Yes, we're Better here for you and off you go. Promptly wasn't there oh, for probably me. probably wasn't there. <laughs> and Deborah, your husband, were you with him when he um, was No, I wasn't with him actually. He oh. went to the GP. We moved out of London having just got married. So we had to find a new GP. And he went off to meet this fellow. I said, well, while you're there, why don't you show him your hand? Because mm. his left hand, if he put pressure on it, like sort of undoing a tight tap, it would shake a little. So while you're there, why don't you do that, I said. And he came back and he said, well, this GP said I ought to go and see a neurologist. And that started a train which went on for about sort of six months, very slowly. We didn't think anything. Nobody said Parkinson's. And it ended about six months later in June of that year. I wasn't with him because we didn't know what we were expecting. I met him in a pub afterwards and he told me and we didn't know what Parkinson's was really. I mean, you don't, do you? Unless how, you've met how old it. were you both at the time? He was 38 and I was 34. Mm. Um, and we were, you know, as I say, one year married. And um, that was the only time he sort of expressed emotion about it. And he just said, I'm just so disappointed. Oh, wow. That's the end. Uh, English understatements. Very British. <clears throat> I met a, uh, met a woman the other week and when she was diagnosed with Parkinson's, she offered her husband the opportunity to leave her. She said, I, I, you know, I don't want oh, to put do you that. through this. <laughs> you, you do, your husband didn't do that. That's what I was wondering. Nor would I have done so. I'd like to say I have been. But tell know. them about the eminence grise, what he said. Yes. Well, Professor Marsden was a very senior neurologist at the time, across whose desk Jamie ended up. He said apparently, reportedly, to Jamie, well, it's Parkinson's. 
And Jamie said, well, what shall I do now? What happens next? And he said, you go away and get worse. Oh, golly. <laughs> so we did that. Brilliant. <laughs> do we think Parkinson's care has moved on over the years? <laughs> well, I'd like to think so. Not necessarily. There are some horror stories out there. You know, some people don't even get their diagnosis in a face-to-face situation. Mm. What were your circumstances when you were diagnosed? What were you doing? What was you, And what made you think something was wrong? I was running two businesses, so a PR business and I had a vintage shop on the Pantiles in Tunbridge Wells. And I was also living with a friend who was halfway through the, the process of terminal cancer. And, and I think that was kind of the trigger for me. But the tremor started to come along in its own time. But, but, but that was, it was triggered by stress. It was definitely a stress-induced tremor, not a resting tremor, which they tend to refer to for Parkinson's. But a long time before that, I'd had insomnia and I'd had some depression. But then given the situation I was living in, that wasn't hugely surprising. But you also have a common thing, frozen shoulder, curling of toes, very, very common prodromal symptoms for young onset. Tell me, is it associated with pain? Because I have terrible pain and I keep thinking, well, maybe everyone with young onset has terrible pain. I think young onset do tend to have a lot of pain. I, I get a lot of pain. It's tied in with the dystonia, which is the clawing of toes, the cramping. Mm. How else is this different? You said it was very different. Because it's many different types. And as I say, it's likely to be genetic. So you'll see fewer young onset parkies with the tremor, with the classic resting tremor. If they have a tremor at all, it tends to be a stress or action-triggered tremor. So, you know, if I'm putting something up, after a while, the hand will go. There are cognitive issues, but it's more sort of brain fog. The dementia thing, I think if that comes along, it's more likely to happen at at a more traditional age of dementia. So, you you know, you get that too, but in its own time, perhaps. And the fact that it's rightly or wrongly seen as an old person's disease, I mean, how has that impacted you as a... Well, as a 42-year-old woman given a diagnosis of an old man's disease, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's not an ego trip for you on the day. You mentioned Matt Eagles. Yeah. Matt Eagles is the most positive parkie out there. Amazing man. Yeah. He well, is. Paul, Paul is, is not far behind him, I have to say. <laughs> but I don't think G- Jer- I Jeremy's a bit further behind. <laughs> oh, no, no. But I don't have to put up with as much as Matt, I don't think. And I and you, the way you talk about all the different things, it sounds horrendous. And yet you have a fantastic spirit. And I just wonder where that comes from. Matt taught me some of that, to be honest, and to give him some credit. He said that actually you put out what you hope will be reflected back to you. So if he puts out positivity, it's what he gets back. And, and you know, after a while, the whole sort of sobbing and rocking in a corner gets a bit tired, doesn't it, for you and for everyone else. I find it really interesting, though, when you're, when you're first diagnosed, everyone's, you know, because everyone's aware all of a sudden, it's big news, it's breaking news, isn't it? So they all want to help you. Suddenly all the doors are opened. People pick stuff up, carry stuff for you. And then after a few years, it all gets a bit dull. So oh, still got that, have you? Months, yeah, exactly. Still not better. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> still not dead. You know? <laughs> do people do people say to you? Is the first thing people say to you grasping for some something positive? Oh, Michael J. Fox. He's had it for thirty years. Michael J. Fox. I, I don't mind them bringing Michael J. Fox. I mean, he's a hero. He's a fantastic yeah. bloke, and he's made a huge difference to the young onset Parkinson's community. The bit that annoys me is when they go, my granddad had that, which yeah. is far more common. Yeah, well, no, I, I get a lot of that. Oh, my granddad had that. He died last year. Um, yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's oh, cheers. follow-up bit, isn't it? Surely it's what age he gets it at that counts. 
Young onset Parkinson's yeah. must, by definition, affect people who are younger than onset, the normal cohort. Onset under 50, so 21 to 50. If you get it under the age of 21, you're juvenile. Youngest person to get Parkinson's that I know of was a two-year-old. Oh my goodness. In in America about three years ago. Yeah. The thing that I was told was that the rate of deterioration in Parkinson's is a steady thing. It's very different for different people. Some people with young onset, and we knew somebody in Cambridge all that time ago, their rate was so fast that they went from sort of hero to zero incredibly quickly. Whereas Jamie, fortunately for us, was very responsive to drugs and his rate of deterioration was very slow. So yeah. he arrived at 60 or something still functional and even though he'd had it for sort of 22 years you know he was on an awful lot of medication and had tried most things but you know he was still basically functional and i think that was something to be grateful for can i can i ask you both kena were you did you have to stop working and deborah did jamie have to stop working as a result so actually the best thing i think i did was as i say i was running two companies in in tunbridge wells and I decided to take some pressure off myself. So I relocated to Rye so I could walk the dog on the beach. I still had to do work, obviously. I had to do some, make some kind of a living. So I did sort of freelance stuff. But it, it just took the, a lot of the stress out of it. And I found a very good counsellor in the area who understood he had a, a couple of friends with Parkinson's, not young onset. You probably would have found quite a few of my golf balls on that beach. I've lost a fair few down there. Deborah, what about... Oh, it's so tough being a judge, isn't it's it? It's tough, <laughs> yes. What about Jamie, Deborah? We just relocated to Cambridge and he got a new job. He'd only had it for a year. So, you know, one had to sort of think about that. And in fact, we didn't tell anybody of the diagnosis for a year, except the very closest family, because we needed to digest and to absorb it and to work out what it meant and so on. What Deborah, it meant for us. can I ask whether that yes. was a doctor who advised you not to tell anyone? No. No, you decided. I mean, I think I'm that sort of person. Mm. I'm the person with bad news who goes down the end of the bed and stays there <laughs> for a while. <laughs> I think I was very strongly advised not to tell anyone. Really? And for me, it was completely the wrong advice. What so, were you um, told, Gaynor? No one, no one gave me advice as to whether to come out about my diagnosis or not, but I did come out about it. I actually came out about it in my, my company's Christmas newsletter. So I was diagnosed at the beginning of the October and I came out about it in the, in the Christmas newsletter following. You had given yourself a little time to kind of work out what you thought. Uh, yeah, well, just enough time yeah. to kind of family and, and yeah. close friends. But that there are people that keep this to themselves, young onset to mm. themselves for a good 10 years. Again, one guy even not telling his own mother. The pressure of keeping a secret like that must be exhausting, I would have mm. thought. Gaynor, I mean, the other thing you did, of course, was start a whole charity. Why did you feel the need to do that? Because it wasn't being understood that it was different. And even though they didn't have the science properly formed at that point, and in fact, that that's still a work in progress, we knew from a lifestyle point of view, it was very different. The difference, the stage of life that you're at, and the need that there is for sort of benefit systems that work, that understand this condition. Diagnosed at 42, Basically, the next 10 years of my life should have been the period where you, you get your nest egg together. You, you, you were coining yourself. it. Your, your two businesses were going to go global. Well, that would have been lovely, wouldn't it? Exactly. One day Tunbridge Wells, the next day the world. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and how, when you have a problem, how do you persuade authorities or organisations to sympathise with you? Because they sort of assume, it, don't they, that everything's all right if you're middle-aged, you're not elderly. Do you mean the Department of Work and Pensions? I'm, I mean, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I have done battle there. I have scars, which I can show you, but I won't. But oh, go on. 
they wanted to redefine Jamie at some point where they were rejuggling benefits. And this was at a time when he had a full-time carer and couldn't really go out much except in a wheelchair. And they wanted to redefine him as able to work. So I said, well, where are you going to put the carer? You can provide a sort of small round stool for them to sit on during the day. Anyway, we had a long and intense sort of session. Started with me filling in forms in the polite British way, which is to say, well, obviously he's had Parkinson's for 25 years. I won't bother the people in Queen Square and all these big specialists that he'd seen to, to give testimony about him. Big mistake. You have to write it up a storm. You chaps need to know that if you can sometimes walk 50 yards, but sometimes you can't, you never say that. You always say, I can never walk 50 yards. They can't compute it otherwise. And they will say, oh, he can work in the bits where he can walk 50 yards. They don't understand variable, do they? No. And variable is such a massive part of this. Because you have no confidence that when you stand up, you will be able to walk 50 yards. You can't do it. You can't get back to your car. And there's so many reasons why the meds may not be working well at that particular moment. It could be something that you've eaten, could be a level of stress, could be bad night's sleep. Any of these things impact on how well that drug absorption is happening, if it's happening at all, in the gut and in your system. Have you had a bad encounter with an avocado? (laughs) (laughs) Not lately. (laughs) Because that's something we discovered for ourselves, is that the avocado, in his case completely blocked the absorption of the drug. How interesting. For me, it's eggs. I just can't eat yeah, eggs no. at all. Nothing. No, no. If I eat them, I may as well not go out because, no. you know, I'm horizontal. Can't get up. Exactly. Eggs I... and fish really, really common, I think, because it's it's the protein. Yes. Protein will block I don't know the effectiveness of levodopa. And Gaina, you've had your own battles with the, the DWP or I've got personal... one coming up, Rory, oh, right. actually. I've got a tribunal on Friday. And what's that about? It's mainly because Appendix 8 was missing. (laughs) (laughs) Not Appendix 8, my God. Apparently, they've had their appendix out. So, yeah, I'd love to come back and talk about it, depending on how it goes. But basically, there is a guidebook that the assessors use. And uh, this guidebook doesn't have Appendix 8, which is the part that refers to Parkinson's on severe conditions. It was missing from the contents listing. And it was outside the extent of pages. So it appears on page 263 of 258. I'm just a bit bewildered by this. I'd have thought there was an automatic system in place for what benefits you get for what stage it's at. And it sounds as though every person, every individual has to fight it anew. I think everyone thinks it's all in place. And then they learn it's not. And I guess what we ought to be aware of is is that not everybody's going to have the guts wherewithal background to actually fight it no absolutely i mean it's a massively traumatic thing in the first place to have to deal with this level of uh, well the way it's all written is is if you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent it's and it's so invasive and personal you know and also i mean the last thing you want to do is to write yourself up as worse than you actually feel on the day-to-day because you spend the rest of your time Bigging yourself up, thinking, this is fine, I can do this thing, and it's not so bad, and I'll manage. And you have good days and bad days. But if you have to write down in black and white, if you can write, you know, what it's like at its worst, that's the most awful deleterious. I, you make a very good point there, because I think people are, are spend so much time convincing themselves and convincing their employer that they can still cut it, they can still operate at the same level. And suddenly, when it comes to the finances, 
you have to convince them the other way. Yeah. And presumably it's you a have problem, to be vulnerable. It's a problem because you're going to them, you're going to the authorities to prove your case. Whereas in a way you want the authorities to come to you so that they can see what it is actually like living We had living one there. very good piece of advice, which is when I was tearing my hair out and they were threatening to put him on the sort of work list. And the Parkinson's Disease Society, God bless them, said there was a nice advising lady there by this stage. And she said, what you want to do is go to the DWP and say, I can't do this for myself. Please come here. Send me your representative. And that was the best thing we ever did because a perfectly nice human being turned up at the door, sat down with me, and we went through it question by question and wrote it in her terms, you know, Appendix 8 and all of it. It was a real picture. And what's more, she saw him stumbling into the room and all the rest of it. That was necessary because we you can't do stoic in that situation. Gaynor, do you think you're making any progress with the Spotlight YOPD, your charity? Have you had any victories? Totally. And I think actually finally in the last year or so, I think YOPD is coming of age. And so <laughs> we've, <good>. we've got... <laughs> This is on a, on a global platform as well. So the Movement Disorder Society, who had been ignoring it to a large degree, they're the big brains internationally based in the States, but they've got the best researchers and scientists from all over the globe working with them, specifically on Parkinson's. They released a paper, but they wanted to call it early onset. Other than that, they did very well. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we need the young in there. Come well, on. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. They, they actually had the argument, which seemed a bit bizarre, that there was stigma to being called young. It's like, no, 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 that's the bit we like. <laughs> so you're giving us a cheery note. This is good. You are saying that you're making progress. It is good. It is good. And actually, there's a recent development, which is on the back of the 100,000 Genome Project, which was viewed as such a success for people with young onset Parkinson's, because they got a lot of people coming forward, and they actually saw that there were different genetic types. Now, anyone that has been diagnosed with Parkinson's under the age of 50 can request a whole genome sequence which is, is huge because it's actually finally something solid for the Parkinson's community to work with. I think we've all been massively educated by Gaynor and Deborah. Thank you very much. Before we go, let's do what we usually do when we meet in this pub, get a few things off our chest, have a moan, or in Paul's case, a celebration, a cheery thought about our condition. Who wants to go first? Mark. Yes, I've had some news in that I've increased my dose of my drug, which is Rapona XL. I'm just on that as on four milligrams. I often ask the doctor to double it because once by accident I increased my dose and it seemed to get things better. Been on, on the double dose for a week now and it seems to be maybe showing some improvement. Paul, what about you? Well, a couple of things. One is that uh, it used to take me about 10 minutes to get to the, the toilet in the first thing in the morning. I'd get up. And my pacing is so slow, it takes forever. So I've been put on some fast-acting drugs right at the start of the day to get me moving into the bathroom <laughs> in time, as it were. And the other thing is, I, I think I met someone in in a, in a hospital staff who might have Parkinson's because I, I went to a hospital recently and um, they said, uh, if you want some lunch, you can go to the, the dining hall there along there. So I went to the dining hall. There were four people in there, so it was almost empty. And I saw that they were advertising doing an omelette. So I said, oh. so I said to the girl behind the counter, could I have a cheese and tomato omelette, please? And she said, well, it'll take 45 minutes. <laughs> and I think she must have Parkinson's because that's the only <laughs> explanation. 
Jeremy, have you got a cheery thought for us? No. What do you? What do you? What do you expect? Uh, excellent. Give us a miserable one then. Well, I am fed up about <laughs> depression. That's the the concomitant of this disease. I think the mental bit that just you just think it just seems black. Everything seems black because of the prognosis, <coughs> or just yeah, because of the prognosis. Because you just feel shit. It takes you forever to do things. You can't eat certain things. You can't drink certain things. Yeah, it just is just rubbish. Well, I'm going to come in with something not exactly cheery, on. cheery but but come on, I- interesting. So I've been hearing about a different way of managing people's treatment. We're we're all used to, or, or those of us who've been about this for a while, the fact that it you see your your consultant and then you don't see them for another year, and who knows what happens in between, and you feel a bit kind of hopeless. Well, I've been hearing about an experiment in Devon and Cornwall, which is called Parkinson's home-based care, where you don't necessarily get an annual appointment with your consultant, but you've got a whole range of people from very junior right up to the consultant you can call. You get monitored at home using a, a smartwatch, which you get for a while, in case anything does go wrong. And it seems to give people far more control, far more access to the health service. And they're thinking of rolling it out more widely rather than having this kind of great big annual appointment on which everything hangs with the neurologist. I'm quite excited about that. I'm going to see if I can get on that. Well, it they, sounds yeah. positive in a way, but I mean, unless unless you do see the consultant regularly, surely. Yeah, no, but the, this, this, the, 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 the consultant who's running it is an inspirational woman called Camille Carroll. And she, she says that now what happens if people actually need to see her, she usually doesn't buy video or telephone appointment and she can see them within 10 days because it's all more flexible. So they go up the scale. And also, if she gets back data from these smart watches saying that they're in trouble, she herself will initiate a meeting. So it sounds a more flexible approach. Because I'm, I'm sitting here waiting. I haven't seen my consultant for nearly a year. And I'm kind of wondering when I'm going to see him again. Can I um, take up Jeremy's point about the psychological impact? I was asked recently at uh, some legal gathering, which of my judgments was I most pleased with or proud of? the number I've written and I was able to put my finger on the one immediately and that concerned the allowance you were talking about which used to be called disability living allowance and then was renamed by the coalition PIP do you remember personal independent payment it's non-means tested and it's to enable people who are impaired to live a, a more reasonable life and the coalition government do you remember Esther McVeigh she signed a statutory instrument saying you couldn't get it if the reason for it was psychological you could only get it if it was physical. So if you had agoraphobia or you had black depression and you couldn't go out, you didn't. You lost the pip. So they sued. Was it declared unlawful? And it came in front of me, and I quashed it. And well they didn't. Done, and they didn't appeal, mm. and it was reinstated. So that was the thing I was most proud of. And she stood up in Parliament, Esther McVeigh, and she said, "We're convinced. We've had advice that the judge is wrong, but we're not appealing." <laughs> well, mine's a much more personal story from this week. I had bad news and good news associated with the same thing. The good news was I decided I was not going to stop going to the theatre because I used to go to the theatre a lot. So we managed to get tickets for the uh, Lehman trilogy, which uh, was very good. Not quite as good as people say, but anyway. And the bad news was, though, I got there and just could not move. And I was sitting in my chair and it was sort of slightly trying, you know, the way theatre seats tip upwards. And I thought, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. And I was about to fall out of my chair. You could not believe it. I mean, you were talking about stress and Parkinson's. How stressed 
you may get when you're trying to hold on for dear life in your theatre seat. I made it. I made it through all three acts, and the third act was okay. But the first two acts, I don't know if anyone saw me there, just literally holding on for dear life, because I thought if suddenly, it would have been in one of the quieter bits anyway, that I would have gone cut plonk backwards into the next person. So it's not easy, this bloody illness. It isn't. Uh, that, that may be the reason you didn't enjoy the play as much as you thought you were. Uh, well, no, because I enjoyed the first act most, and that was when it was hardest. I wanted to say mm. something to you, Janine, yeah. because we had some experiences. Jamie loved to go to the theatre, and he had an enormous, embarrassing amount of dyskinesia, which is these random mm. movements, very violent in his case, which would come on for no reason with arms jerking and legs jerking. You don't need to be sitting next to somebody doing that. But he still wanted to go to the theatre. And we pulled it off, you know, two or three times, sort of late in, in his life. And it was absolutely wonderful because they would give us, you know, and you've got to get the balls to say this, but, you know, say, I need a carer with me. And then they go for free. I was the carer, weren't free. But the best experience was was one where in one of those lovely West End theatres, we arrived, they put us in a box, which was specially for disabled people so when he was in a wheelchair and when he started to thrash around and his arms and legs were all over it, I could just very slowly pull him back <laughs> away from the edge and you know if you'd been clinging on for dear like mm. I mean you know I think one's got to be prepared to sort of ask for these things even though you want to still be the normal person who sits in the stalls those experiences that we had were unbelievably good so I recommend it well it's... certainly the staff were unbelievable unbelievable yes. they kept yes. checking and that's nice yeah, and I, I do well, that's think that's really a positive good advice thing. isn't it mm. always ask very Rolls-Royce treatment it really was and they made us wait and if we wanted to go to the loo they took us you know with them waited for all the other people to leave did we want a drink in the interval they brought it you'd like that Jeremy yeah <laughs> I would say to do that with travel as well if you're getting a flight let them know in advance, I want a wheelchair waiting for me. You might not need it, you might not want to use it, but it's there. I'm going to ask at Brentford Football Club because I did get invited <laughs> to the director's box the week before last, but last week I was back in my usual place, standing behind the goal, quivering like a madman at a very tense game. We did, you know, because it was within a year of our marriage, we then had to decide whether to have children or not after this diagnosis, and we did want to press on so we did so we ended up with Jamie often looking after two very small children when I was working you know, on occasion because he stopped working I think when the second one was born there was an occasion where he took this nine-month-old babe off into the middle of Cambridge for an afternoon little outing in the buggy and this was before mobile phones when the only people who had mobile phones were builders and I suddenly got this sort of sepulchral call on the on the landline saying it's me. I'm stuck. Come and get me. And baby roaring in the background, I could hear. Oh, God. I looked out, of course, and found that he'd got the car. So I couldn't go and get him. So I climbed onto my bike, zoomed into town, found him. And a, a nice builder was standing with him. And the baby's roaring. It's all gusty. And Jamie can't move at all, at all. And he'd staggered across the sort of the marketplace with this baby. People thinking he's drunk, you know, all the usual stuff. Anyway, it was an avocado block, such as I mentioned to you, Jillian. He had taken pills with an avocado for lunch and the drug just doesn't go through. It stops dead. So he was in, had become completely down, as one calls it. Anyway, in the course of me kind of bundling him into the car and the baby and the bike and, you know, all the stuff, the drug suddenly started to just come through. And so he, like a flower, sort of, you know, resuscitates himself until he's totally fine. 
And so by the time I was about to get in the car and drive him home, I'm profusely thanking the builder, all the rest of it. Jamie just turns to me and said, are you going to drive or shall I? <laughs> <laughs> I looked at the builder and he's thinking, what? And I thought, I can't explain. I said, it's Parkinson's. Just, you know, it's how it goes. You've been listening to Movers and Shakers with me, Rory Kathleen-Jones, and my friends Gillian Lacey-Solomar, Mark Mardell, Paul Mayhew-Archer, Nicholas Mostyn and Jeremy Paxman. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Poddo. Our theme music is by Alex Stobbs and cover artwork by Till Lucat. Thanks again to Boardwave for their support. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app and do rate and review if you've enjoyed the show. We're also on Twitter at MoversAnd6. That's Movers and the number six. So please share the show there and email any thoughts or questions to feedback at moversandshakerspodcast.com. See you next week. <laughs>